and welcome back to the Journey Through Justice. I'm Petra Hostetler, and today we have a special guest as Mr. Pastor Sherman Bradley with us today for our episode 10. We're just going to get to know him and talk about his story and his organization. Michelle is here. Hello. Grant is with us as well. Well, thank you, Petra. A special treat. <laughs> as always. <laughs> and Sherman. So let's uh, let's talk about let's talk about you. Can you give us a little bit of your story? Who you are? Yes. Who where are you, you live? Mr. Sherman Bradley. What are you up to these days? Well, I am from. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate this opportunity to share. I am from Cincinnati. Whoop whoop. <laughs> been trying to leave ever since. Wow. <laughs> uh, I actually did leave for six years and came back. Uh, didn't want to, but my family started off after coming up here from Monroeville, Alabama, and Addiston, Ohio, where my mother grew up, to Cincinnati, and started off in the West End uh, before it was demolished by uh, I-75. When it was the West End, in its original context, a thriving, bustling community of African-American businesses and entrepreneurs, mm. doctors and lawyers, and you name it, they had it. Their own mm. entertainment district. It was, the stories are just fabulous of what they were able to do, especially with the history of Cincinnati and its mm. uh, underground railroad system and all of what leads up to attempting to build a community for themselves. Mm. My father still recalls far too many stories of signs on water fountains and having to go back through the back door of a restaurant to get fed, uh, to take the carry out because you couldn't eat inside. Uh, he recalls being 12, I think he said, before they moved from the West End downtown into Cumminsville where they actually had indoor plumbing hmm. and full electricity. So my father knows what it means to be poor and so I'm what you would consider first generation removed from. I'm fortunate at age five years of age we moved from Eviston after they moved from the West End to what's called Mount Healthy, Ohio where my father was the first of all the siblings to purchase a home, their own home. Wow. And that began a journey uh, that was very interesting because my parents, uh, I'm an only child, my parents lasted for a decade before the dreaded D word surfaced. Mm -hmm. And uh, around age 11 or 12, uh, both of them remarried. The interesting thing about this tale is that uh, my mother remarries a guy, as my mother's a Christian, my father isn't. My mother marries a guy who's on the fence, meets him through his mother, who was a Christian. He, he winds up becoming a Christian and then has spent the last 29 years pastoring a church in the West End, which is a very interesting tale. My father remarries around the same time, but remarries to a Caucasian woman who happens to work in his office. He works for the Ohio Department of Transportation out of Lebanon, Ohio. And she has a daughter a year and a half younger than me who hates black people. She grew up in Middletown, indoctrinated into this mindset. Her mother rebels from it, but her daughter's entrenched in it by this time. So from age 12 to 18, I'm living in middle-class America. By this time, we've moved from uh, Mount Healthy once my parents divorced, and they both resurfaced uh, in Forest Park, Ohio, not far from one another, so they could be close to me. And I went to Forest Park High School long before it was Winton Woods. But that was a very dysfunctional period of my life because one I'm only child stuck in the middle of two parents now I'm in two blended families mm -hmm. that are polar opposites my father's family not a Christian my mother my stepfather now are both of them have a daughter in the mixed and now I'm having to adjust to not only siblings but female siblings after being an only child now I'm caught wow. up in the midst of this racial dysfunction in my home because I left my mother at that same time both of them married to go live with my father because it was much more freedom living with the non-christian than the christian <laughs> <laughs> right couple that with the fact that my uncle my mother's oldest brother pastored the church I grew up in mm. that whole side of the family were staunch uh, Baptist 
folk and at that age I didn't mind going but man you know my father's house cable my mother no cable you know my father I stay up late watching cable on Saturday night my mother's house you're in bed before the news comes on because you got to get up for Sunday school at the crack of dawn You chose wisely, huh? You know, uh, at that time, yes. Looking back, not so wisely. Well, out of that, there was this interesting dynamic going on because my parents taught me to see myself no differently than anybody else saw themselves. My father always used the phrase, we put our pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. Yet, here I am at an age where I cannot comprehend emotionally or psychologically the hate that I'm receiving when I haven't done anything to deserve it. Couple that with some of the histories that I learned from my father and my grandmother about Cincinnati and its history and now it's in my home, uh, Mm. that tainted my view of the Caucasian community and the city itself. Mm. Mm. One nice nugget in the story though is that my stepsister got pregnant at 16 years of age, had this beautiful blonde haired blue light little boy that I just loved and adored, even babysat for sometimes before she wound up leaving the home. And that was my first understanding of my love for that age bracket. And even becoming an adult, having my own children, that age bracket has always been my joy. The babies, I get up in the middle of the night, I'm changing diapers, I'm walking the floor. I, I don't mind any of that. I love that aspect. Now, when they get to, by the time they get to junior high, high school, it, it's over. Two for one kids. <laughs> Somebody's got to take them from me because I'll string them all up. You know, but here it is that I find myself in Cincinnati in a uh, the dysfunctions of our time and our culture, and not knowing that I'm building a wall up and closing myself off. Um, generally and very intentionally as it relates to the Caucasian community. It was only going into the military, uh, going into the United States Air Force right out of high school, that I would begin to see my own issues regarding that. But it was still safer than opening up and trusting. Now I'm also dealing with the issue of the pen is mightier than the sword in the military. And one of the things I was not was a conformist. And so I didn't do very well in the military over my six years. I didn't like the game that was being played. I didn't like the favoritism that was being showed, the isolation, the separation. And it was easy to um, hide racism inside the military. Mm -hmm. Now, fortunately for me, I spent most of my six years in Europe where I got to experience other ethnic groups and it began to chip away at that flawed Cincinnati perspective mm-hmm. to know that it's not the world. And that was huge yes. for me. Now, uh, I still did not want to come back to Cincinnati. The only reason I came back to Cincinnati after six years in the military, most of it in Europe, I uh, spent some time in San Antonio, Texas, Tucson, Arizona, and Las Vegas where I spent a year. I loved it out west. I wanted to go back out west, but I just spent four years in Europe. So the only place Uncle Sam would ship my goods for free was <laughs> where? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Uh. So I came back home and just got stuck. Mm-hmm. Now, divine stuck. It was divine stuck, yes. <laughs> because it was here that I realized that I could no longer hide behind that 15th and 30th paycheck that came, regardless of what I did with my life. Mm. Back here, I had to actually start (laughs) over because the only thing I was trained for in the military was law enforcement and security. And I wanted to do neither of those when I got back. I started that way because it was the easiest access to employment, but I hated it. And so I had a myriad of jobs from 1990 till 98, I think, when I first wound up at Vine Elementary in the Head Start program, back with the babies. Loved it, hated the system, had to get out of the system, but loved the work with the three, four, and five-year-olds. It was heaven going to work every day, watching these little sponges light up with every new endeavor of learning. 
and it was just valid. But then there's the families, and then there's the system, and the system was so jaded because nobody wants to come to the hood, especially back then. Nobody wanted to come to Over the Rhine. It's not the Over the Rhine that it is today. Yeah. So it yes. was, it was predominantly single and newly married Caucasian females as teachers who did not get any training in college, most that had no former experience with anything relative to the hood, mm. and did not understand the children. Mm. And we would get first graders and kindergartners sent to our class for time out because they knew I could handle them when some of the teachers were just fed up. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that dynamic was a burden every day to carry and to see because the only other two teachers were in there was there was one aide and then there was a janitor that were african-american males Mm. that was it in a school predominantly african-american it was insane to see the system failing at such a horrible rate and it would i would get out of that but it was on that time that i was also uh, finally coming face to face with uh, actually about 96 I finally came face to face with myself and my mother's voice in my head constantly telling me Jesus is the only way mm-hmm. and I would find myself at a little Baptist church at the corner of Finley and Elm and over the Rhine of all places because I had uh, some friends from high school there and it was there that I would meet Damon Lynch the third and new prospect and find myself learning what activism looked like what does the gospel look like from a grassroots effort really taking Matthew 25 and incorporated, incorporating it into the very fabric and DNA of who you are, which should be no, a no-brainer for Christendom. But it, was, it, was, it felt like an anomaly. Um, and so here we are leading up to 2001. And for, prior to that, we were actually burying some of the African-American males whose pictures still are on poster board who died at the hands of the police because their families did not have proper systems set up to bury them. And we became the place for the community to come and vent. And it was very enlightening. It uh, really challenged everything that I grew up in in a more traditional uh, setting as it relates to evangelism that had far more to do with handing out tracts as you knocked on doors than it did actually being engaging in the community with those that you want to bring in rather than telling them to show up. You know, meeting them where they are wasn't something that we really engaged in at the depth that I could see now at this particular time of my life was far more fruitful. But then we have, you know, the uprising taking place in 2001 and we're inundated with dignitaries and news from all over the world showing up at our doorstep because he had the pulse of the community and the voice for the community. Now, what was this, I'm sorry, what was this 2001 uprising for those who don't know what you're referencing? This was the implosion of the community saying enough is enough. We've had the 15th uh, Timothy Thomas. Right before that was... um, Roger Owensby, which really was the, the biggest powder keg. Uh, Timothy Thomas, who was unarmed and shot in the back in an alley, really just set it off. And That was a very ugly time. The city had no idea what was going on unless you lived in it. Now, at the time, uh, in the aftermath, in the year following, I wound up at City Gospel Mission being employed to help start a drug rehab program for men because crack was running rampant downtown. And I was also at the beginning of the stages of the development of the Black United Front that was started by Damon Lynch and a few others that was working toward what ultimately came about to be the Cincinnati Police Collaborative that's been used in other cities around the country that restructured how Cincinnati must do policing to prevent this from happening again and to be more engaged to get out of the vehicles, to get on bicycles, on horses, and walk the beats, and get to actually engaging people in order to build the kind of sense of safety and trust necessary to really handle the issues of criminality uh, from a policing standpoint. Now, you know, because we've got to look beyond the policing when it comes to looking at the issues of poverty, because poverty is systemic. And there are systems at play that continue to exploit and manipulate people who have limited resources to create the kind of quality of life that they want for themselves. And that society benefits from when they have it. 
So we find ourselves uh, in 2002, and I'm running a drug rehab program, and I know the work's going on at the Black United Front. I know they're pressing the police department. I know the feds have come in. But I am blown away by looking out my window of this homeless shelter and seeing Indiana and Kentucky license plates pull up to buy crack cocaine from people who live. Some live in the city. Some didn't live in the city. Some knew that it was a hub and would come from outside the city to sell. And I learned this through chaplains at the police department. And you have all these mixed messages sent out there about this epidemic that was happening that was criminalized mm. and criminalized for the seller not necessarily criminalized for the folks that I saw who were not always African American while having Indiana and Kentucky license plates coming in to over the Rhine now if folk from Indiana and Kentucky know where to come surely the district the police district that's right there in the city no so I had to meet a few of them because I needed to find this out for myself and I tried to give license plates numbers and I tried to talk to the beat cops about what was happening and there are systems that for even the ones that really wanted to do something there were systems that you have to follow that sometimes just made it difficult to try to uh, adequately deal with this circumstance huh. and it just I, I just got to see the difficulties on so many different levels that need to create a wonderful picture in order to create change and wondered how mm -hmm. can I be more impactful and so what it drove me to was the, the, the best thing that we can offer another individual is a listening ear because most people understand their situations enough to know enough about how to make some of the decisions. Sometimes they just need encouragement and a support system and somebody to walk with them who can help them uh, mitigate some of the difficulties that they haven't figured out how to overcome themselves. Now, we know that there are some issues with substance abuse that gets in the way, and sometimes because of the cycle of that, there are some issues with mental health that gets passed on from that. Babies having babies, substance abuse inside systems, when these children are born, yada, yada, yada. But there are ways to engage. I found out running a drug rehab program that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And mm. we've set up systems where we have tried to deal with people with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. And we've created systems where it's about the people employed, not the people that they're serving. And in that challenge, I found myself saying, okay, we've got to go deeper. And, and, and then, you know, as I delved into the Word of God deeper for myself, it all stems down to relationship, relationship, relationship. The systems and the practices are only as good as the significance of the relationships of the people at play. And if we don't understand, and are, if we aren't willing to empathize with those that we're engaging, if we're not really willing to let go of our judgments, as to how they got where they are or why they are where they are in the process of getting to know them for who they are, then you can't build trust. If you can't build trust, you can't transfer information. And mm. that is critical to whatever process, policy, or program you want to enact to create long-term change. And the beautiful thing about it for us as Christians is the gospel. Yeah. It's discipleship. It's simply walking with another and giving them voice while assisting as you hear them with what's most important to them while also wanting to infuse new information about what can increase their quality of life mm -hmm. and the quality of life of their families. Yeah, I like what you said. Uh, people don't, thank you, I'm sorry. You like get okay. your own. <laughs> she took my notepad. For those of you who can't see, can you get me a pen too? Oh, sure. That would sure. be nice. Here you go. Thank you. Um, I like what you said. You said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Can you can you expound upon that some more? Well, we typically lead from what we know. It is important to us, if we're honest with ourselves, that we come across as having some knowledge, some information, some shit that we can offer another human being. It, it makes us feel good. But when you're dealing with difference and you're dealing with limited experiences along class or ethnicity, 
that may not be the first best interaction to have, especially if you're dealing with concrete thinkers. Some of the challenges with folk who've lived in generational poverty is the process of concrete thinking. Mm -hmm. And abstract thinking must be taught. It just, you don't come out the womb with understanding how to plan ahead and what to plan ahead for. Mm. And in a concrete thinker's mind, it's about the tyranny of the moment. The quote that Pablo Freire uses to describe people who get stuck in what's happening today. Building, you know, I, I can recall coming back from the military and getting my, you know, because I'm abroad for most of my time, right? So I, my first income tax return I got expedited because I wanted the money now. And the money was spent before I got it. I knew what I was going to use it for. Mm. Rather than seeing that it's going to be another 12 months before this comes around again, and there might be an emergency of some sort three months down the road, put it in the bank and save it mm -hmm. for that rainy day that is going to happen, oh, I'm spending it. Because mm. I'm caught in the concrete about right now and what I want right now. And I lived that cycle for far too long before folk wiser than myself. And, and quite frankly, sometimes it was um, my father's voice saying, boy, you, you need to put some money away. That's abstract thinking. That's, that's why I have AAA now. <laughs> because I know something's going to happen with my car. Mm -hmm. And I plan for that by having that set aside to assist me so it's less of an emergency when it occurs. Mm -hmm. If you aren't taught that, then you're stuck on the side of the highway at 11 o'clock at night trying to call Uncle Bob. Mm -hmm. But how can you kind of, I don't know, how can you move past concrete, concrete thinking when um, you're sort of always in survival mode, right? Like, is that attached? If I'm just worrying about where my next meal is coming from, mm -hmm. why would I bother? You'll bother if you have supportive service. Most folk who are in the tyranny of the moment, living in survival, have supportive services assisting them to try to make those ends meet. Mm -hmm. Unless they're working two jobs and they really don't have any time for that. And that, that can become a trap in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But it's going to wear you down. And, and ultimately, we find other ways to medicate that kind of stress that sometimes are just not healthy. And it's not always illicit, you know, illegal drugs. Sometimes it's caffeine, it's food, it, it, it can mm -hmm. be relationships. You know, one of the things about generational poverty is people become objects. There's a paternalism because there's a necessity for safety. And the more friends I have in my apartment complex, people whose children I watch and people who watch my children, the more people I have having my back, the safer life becomes because in a society of victimized predators, Mm. They're looking for prey. Mm. The prey are yeah. people who are isolated, who do not have community. Mm. But when you have community, and you know the significance of community, when Michelle shows up into our complex and now wants to befriend Petra, I'm like, no, no, Petra's my friend. You need to take a step back. And that paternalism happens and sometimes without really understanding what the dynamics are that are underlining that, that mm. are really about safety and trying to make sure that, because bartering is happening. One of the things that happens in generational poverty, a lot of bartering happens. They know how to assist one another. And it's one of the things that, mm -hmm. and providing trainings. Yeah, I got some through, sugar. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, but not only that, um, when I've done trainings through Consider the Poor, I've gone into social workers and had to educate them on how not to be offended and offensive going into a home and being confronted by a next door neighbor who smells of alcohol who's coming in and is not the most uh, cordial individual may even be hitting on you or hitting on the woman who you're coming to uh, engage with her children who's on the system and you would much prefer he's not around but he seems to show up every time and you're wondering why is this guy around and when he leaves you finally tell her about herself and this guy and how he needs to not be there you fail to realize that this guy's a mechanic without a car mm. and she has a hoopty mm. and he gets the benefit of using that car sometimes so he keeps it running and she gets the benefit of that car continuing to run because she's got to get these kids to a babysitter and get to work regularly mm. But the caseworker who does not understand the culture of poverty and the generational dynamics that are at play and the significance of relationships, even though they may seem dysfunctional from afar, there is a value in it that you have to understand if you're not going it's to figure. Working. It's, it's working. It's working for them. Mm -hmm. It's working for them. Mm 
and then come up against that in a spiritual sense is coming up essentially against generational strongholds that is a valid point as well i mean we can't even get to that depth until we first get to the place of realizing just in relating it's unwise Mm -hmm. it doesn't build trust it says you don't understand me and you're judging me Mm -hmm. who wants to listen to you at that point Because you have knowledge, but you don't care. You have knowledge, but you don't care. And I don't want anything you have to offer if you don't care about me, even if it can help me. I'm not a project. You are right. I may be in the projects, but I don't want to be viewed as a project. Or like, it would be like, what do you even know if you don't understand this currency? Right. Mm. You know, like, what do you, you, if you can't speak this language and you don't understand how the currency works, what do you even know? You're giving me, you're giving me dollar bills and I need euros. Mm-hmm. And I am, I may less likely have significant enough experience with your values and that other environment to even value anything you say apart from what is directly connecting to myself and my environment that now you're telling me you don't understand. You definitely don't have, you have limited experience. Here's, here's another one that's a, a tremendous challenge. Poverty today for people living in it is not the same for people who lived in it 30 years ago. That is true. That is true. And if I had a dollar for every time I spoke to somebody who 30 years ago grew up in it and want to correlate what they experienced, especially if they're not African-American or Latino, with what's happening for African-American and Latinos in poverty today, I would pull my hair out. Yeah. I'd have none left. It's insane how we don't want to empathize. Yeah, we grew up in the lower homes. And my mom, my mom is white, um, but that's neither here nor there. But now that she's out of it and, you know, we lived in College Hill at some point, had a nice little, I don't know, what townhouse. So we, we moved out, if you will. But, you know, one of her responses is, I was broke too. I was on food stamps. And she doesn't understand that the dynamic, number one, my mother's white, so it kind of does matter. But partly, the dynamic has changed completely. The definition, not necessarily the definition of poverty, but the manifestation of poverty has changed tremendously. And the supportive systems around it have changed considerably. How you used food stamps 30 years ago, you can't use that same food stamp system that, today. You know what? That's, that's right. Yeah. It, you can call a card and it's not paper no more. Thank you. And you can use that <laughs> phrase, but if you don't understand the context, yeah. you will misrepresent what's going on today because you're still thinking from where it was when you experienced it. Yeah. And again, that's a lack of empathy. We don't step out of ourselves enough and into the shoes of another to actually see from their lens we're seeing from our own mm-hmm. and then superimposing what they said through our own lens because we want our experience to have value and meaning. Can you explain a little bit more about how the poverty is different from someone who was probably going through that 30 years ago versus how the different inputs have changed today? That's good, Patrick. Well, one of the easiest references is along ethnicity. So when I have these conversations with my Caucasian brothers and sisters, what they've never ever had to expose, been exposed to is the discrimination of simply being a minority. So when we look at the landscape of uh, housing, for instance, Caucasians did not have to deal with redlining, even if they were poor. So they garnered access, whereas minorities, my relatives, did not garner access. Uh, My father, because of his four years in the Marine Corps and his GI Bill and him pressing, him being intellectually astute enough to know that he needed the money, and so they saved it, He knew he needed to understand the process before he engaged it so he couldn't be manipulated by the process, went in and pressed. And in 1975, I think it, no, 1970, he acquired through the GI Bill a loan for a home, which is rare. (laughs) From the 30s to the the 80s even, it was difficult for minorities. Matter of fact, in 79 and 80, when they deregulated the credit card industry and the mortgage industry, then they opened it up to minorities more, but minorities who previously were not eligible because their credit was not at a place that it warranted giving them this kind of money. Mm-hmm. And then they gave it to them, and then they let them foreclose, and then they yes. took it back. Yes. 
And so those dynamics are at play that differentiate how some people experience poverty versus how another person experiences poverty. Now, you may have not had new clothes and had to share your clothes with your siblings. You may not have gotten the nicest toy of somebody in middle class that was white and you were white. That is true. Nobody's discrediting that. Nobody's discrediting anything that you experienced inside of what you lived as it relates to poverty. What has been the challenge is getting them to see that for a minority, there's another sinkhole that you wind up in with the, in a, the inaccessibility of resources that were made viable to others who were not minority because the system allowed it. Mm. Uh, there's a guy named Jim, uh, Tim Weiss. He's got a um, documentary called White Like Me. And he chronicles the stuff that took place in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the verbiage that was being used. And they talk about how white families could come in during after the depression and get assistance and it was not called welfare then no it was presented as being good citizens helping other good citizens mm -hmm. in society it wasn't till lee atwater uh, in the 60s where they then demonized welfare because they saw that many of the folk that were on it were black and brown and it was the new way to call us niggas without using the word and continuing this exploitation and discrimination of services, especially as it relates to housing, employment, and finance. If you can control housing, mm -hmm. employment, and finance, mm -hmm. you then you, you can continue to keep up people bound. Now, you couple that with a criminal system mm -hmm. that is going to exploit you that goes all the way back to the black codes. Yes. I mean, so... There's a lot of history connected that separates a minority going through poverty in America versus my Caucasian brothers and sisters, unless they're Appalachians. Now, they're Appalachians who have experienced, some of it geographically has been limiting, but because of sometimes their, their dialect, their speech, how, what their values were, uh, those who they would deem themselves, who uh, valued themselves more, seen themselves as more uppity, treated them as if they were minorities. Uh, they've had some experiences that I've had to learn from them themselves to be able to differentiate that they've had another sinkhole that they found themselves in where they were no longer really treated as white citizens in society. So we're 10 episodes in, and this is the first time that I've gone 30 minutes without saying a single word. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was silence over there. But, but you were listening. Well, that's what you I... You really take That was what I wanted There was some scales falling off his eyes of, over there. You're talking about the kids, and the words you talked about, the kids that you love, is um, they're sponges. And I felt like that for the last 30 minutes. I felt like I've... Um, I felt like you taught me things, and you said things that I've never even thought of right at the thing about the mechanic never would have thought of it mm. my parents had money i've always had money to go take it to a toyota dealership or somebody i never thought about it that way and i think a lot of folks who um caucasian folks who have been have been raised middle class like i have um have just spent the last 30 minutes saying holy hell like what <laughs> what it, it you just you you shared a lot of things that I never would have even thought. And, and I, I have two questions specifically that came to mind. One dealing with the church and one dealing with the system. Um, which one do you want first? <laughs> Give me the system. All right, good. That's what I wanted first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is, is, you know, we're talking about, you, you talk about social workers and not understanding um, you know what the folks maybe that they're working with what they're experiencing and you talk about the justice system the criminal justice system and and, and the disconnect or even when we're talking about law enforcement and the disconnect there are we hiring the wrong people are we to a point where so my, myself right I work right now in the criminal justice system or for the Department of Corrections um, I, I don't experience any of the experiences that the folks that I am working with have if I am a, if I drop myself in and I become a social worker who's working with a mother um, trying to feed three, a single mother trying to feed three children and she's on food stamps and I don't understand any of this, um, am I doing more harm than I am good? The answer is not black and white. 
you mentioned being a sponge. If you have cognitive dissonance and you refuse to hear anything I've said, then you're the wrong person in the position. But if you're willing to be open and hear and acknowledge that we all have implicit biases, it's innate within us. There is no shame in it. The only shame is the ignorance or the unwillingness and the apathy that comes from saying, I ain't got none. Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. I see it clearly. Then we can differentiate between who needs to be in this position and who doesn't. So, but the bigger issue before employment is academia and education. We're not educating in the fields. You talk about social work, you talk about social services, you talk about academia, education. We're not educating adequately so that folk are better prepared to go in and ch- deal with the challenges that they're going to face and understand the different value systems that are set up mm-hmm. and why they are the way that they are and the systemic nature behind them that create some of the decision making that they look at face value and say that's just unwise mm. but you got to dig deeper you got to get the context and why in order to fully understand mm. so, so how do we fix it so and, and, and i'm just going to rely on prisons for a second because that's what i know um you know I, I i i have a heart for for that system i have a heart for the folks who are being put down by that system uh, but then i, I and I want to preface this by saying there are a lot of good people that work in that system. And I feel like, for me prefacing that, you know, what might be coming. Um, I, I see people on a regular basis who um, they have their specific amount of time in, and because of the union or something, whatever it is, there's nothing that can, this, short, this side of breaking the law, there's nothing that can get rid of them out of that position. And so I have folks who are coming into prison who... Uh, you know, you talk about generational poverty, generational incarceration, folks who are serving time with their dads and their grandfathers, or that they don't even, they never knew their dads, but their dads are spending life in prison by the time they were five years old. Um, and so people who are working there, it's yet another paycheck. And so that importance of the relational aspect that you're talking about, it, it seems, and this, this could be a, a unwise statement on my part, um, it seems as though that is void um, so often in the government or the, the system um, that is controlling so much of what we are experiencing. So when we see these massive, they're not private corporations or government, but they're corporations that are running and, and, and doing these things and, and people who can't lose their jobs for not doing the right thing. How do we fix that? I had a question. <laughs> Sorry. I know, you was ready. Hold that question. But you, but you said... Some there are, and I believe that because I know you. I believe that because I know you, and I've met some folks. But you said there are some good people who work within the system. Correct? Are any of those good people in positions of leadership or power? Yes. Okay. So then, I'm wondering if the people who who are those good people that you're referring to, who are in positions of leadership and power, which kind of like will go into kind of like what he does, will take on the responsibility of training, mm-hmm. even though they can't, you know, let those people go, you're still not absent of the responsibility to bring in new training, to bring in new things. So is that possible? Yes, and, and yes. But how do you change the mindset of folks who have been in, not, not in positions of power, but if I'm talking to someone who is dealing with an inmate, for instance, on a day-by-day basis, who's down in the trenches with them, and as somebody who has been in that position since 1985, and that mindset is still in effect, how, how, do, we, how do we change that? Like how do we, how do we get up on this one? <laughs> well, this is where you have to transition to the second question that you wanted to offer. What's the responsibility of the church? So as a believer, because the church is not the building or the name on the building or the person behind the pew with his name on the outside of the building. It's the people. And as born-again believers, if we would do our job of being a light in dark places, it is the only thing we know that can affect the heart. And that's our responsibility that we haven't really invested ourselves Mm. into and it's not just this particular category of our marketplace it's our society as a whole so as it goes we go it goes Mm -hmm. ultimately when he comes back he's knocking on our hearts first Mm -hmm. before he goes 
to the darkness mm -hmm. and to the sinner. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we are responsible. We are responsible. And we haven't owned up to our responsibility in such a capacity that we've infiltrated the systems of where we know it is its greatest darkness. Mm -hmm. And the prison systems are one of them. And we know Jesus would. We talk about it all the time. And then we want to point for somebody who wants to raise their hand and say, I'm called to prison ministry. Now, the, the, the call is to the body. For the lost, we got to stop hierarching categories of more significance than others. And, and, and all this comes from this dysfunction of uh, race having an actual construct. Because it, it doesn't. And, and it's been the f one of the greatest forms of division teaching us that it, there's some scientific or theological reference to uh, difference in races. No, there's only multiple ethnicities, but there's only one human race. Mm -hmm. And if we as the body can get that within our DNA as the body, which is, what's, what's that? Uh, that's just an oxymoron. I mean, it's already yeah, that yeah, way. You, yeah. It can't not be that way. We're just so deceived that we don't enact it inside our walk of faith. Because if we would, we would create different systems and structures to assist those like yourself who are in there in that darkness having additional light to come in and infiltrate with the beauty of what is the simplest form of transformation and that's unconditional love it's the only reason we get to claim for ourselves that mm -hmm. we're believers somebody waited on our knucklehead selves mm -hmm. long enough till we finally said uncle Amen. Mm. so w when you said earlier that People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Is when we apply that to the church, is that why it feels like there's a growing void between the church and so many folks in this world? I would say that in the Western culture we have been lulled to sleep by comfort and convenience and uh, many circles in America we have claimed to be Christians but actually were nationalists mm. oh, Lord thank you and that leads and guides our decision-making and our structures we, we've so organized we've organized ourselves out of the gospel mm. that's why we got thousands of denominations everybody's right Mm. Nobody wants to be righteous. Throw <laughs> <laughs> about five mics. <laughs> and, and so we wow. have the challenge of looking in our own mirrors first and saying, what am I willing to divest myself of so that somebody else can have the hand up that they need? And you, you, you know, when I was playing homeless shelter, when we changed from analog to digital, we were inundated with people with more of them probably good intentions than not, dropping off analog televisions to a homeless shelter. Some of them pulled them up on the back of pickup trucks and in vans because they were the big wood consoles that you needed two people to carry. So I can give to poor people. I'm not giving those TVs out to poor people. And not a one of them, and I kid you not, this is not an exaggeration, not a one of them paid the $35 for the converter box and brought it with them. So that if I did want to give them away, I could give a converter box so they could actually take it home, plug it up, and it would actually work. Failing to realize that everybody is watching the same television, the same commercials, wants the same new digital technology, no matter what their socioeconomic class or ethnicity. And some of them got offended because it got to the point where it's like, no, I'm not taking that. We're not bringing that. We don't have, we don't have space for that. We're, that's not why we're here. That's not what we do. So you can give a handout. But if you're going to give a hand up, you've got to get close enough to look somebody in their face, build a relationship and some, some sense of significance enough to, for them to reach their hand back out to you, even though they may need you. Mm. But I, if I just write a check or I just drop off a TV, I get to check a box and go about my life because that's far more comfortable and convenient than actually getting close enough to have to relate with somebody unlike me. Mm. It reminds me of the gospel, you know. When you said that, I wrote down it costs to care and that's what that's what it is with with jesus he had to get dirty he had to get in he had to step in in 
such a disgusting way. I mm-hmm. mean, can you just imagine just being perfect? I mean, I know we all think that we're perfect <laughs> at some point. But could I mean, and honestly, we do sometimes when we get around other people who think differently than we do. We assume that we have like the right idea, the best idea. And as soon as that you get up, you know, in relationship with someone, you start to bump up against things. You just imagine it's the holiness of God coming to the disgusted place of earth. But it costs to get dirty. It costs to carry. And so if it's not, I get even for me, just asking myself this, what is it costing me? Do I care enough for, for my to lose something? Mm, to build like a real relationship. So this like, so I wrote down the question, like, what's a real hand up? Because I think that people have different definitions mm. of a hand up. And I hear it used so often today. In the sense, like, where I'm hearing, like, majority culture people say, well, I'm not going to give you a hand up, I'll give you, I'm not going to give you a hand out, I'll give you hand ups. Like, mm. when they're using it as an excuse to, like, well, this is why we should shorten or cut off welfare. And this is why we should not give out as many food stamps. Or this is why we need to cut this and that. Because we're not, we're not giving handouts anymore. We need to be giving hand ups instead. And so I just wanted to pause and <laughs> talk about, that, yeah. can we talk about what a real hand up is? Because if what's Jesus, hand up, what's hand out? <laughs> right. Like if Jesus was like, no, Mary, no, Mary, I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to cast all the demons out of you. I'm going to cast a few and then you need to help yourself with the rest. I'm going to give you a hand up, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a hand out. Like did, would Jesus give hand, hand ups? Like, you know, like it just, that rubs me the wrong way, and so I just wanted to sit there for a minute and see if we can unpack this concept of what a hand up is. In Deuteronomy, it tells us about finance and economics, the socioeconomics of a society. One of the greatest forms of entrepreneurialism was owning land, even still is today. But back then, you were agricultural more than you were industrial. It wasn't an industrial revolution at that time. But what were we told to do with that field? You leave the corners for the stranger and the migrant to be able to come and glean. Mm-hmm. It's not all yours. Mm-hmm. It's not, what do you tell the guy who built the bigger barn after pulling in all of his produce, his profit, his crops? First you fool. This was never given to you in plenty for you to hoard to yourself. This night, thy soul will be required of you. You won't get to benefit from any of that. Mm. And we haven't incorporated proper systems of finance, which could be done in this country and benefit folk who we deem we want to give a hand up to without it being... uh, socialized in such a capacity where we demonize anything that is a set-aside. When this country was built on set-asides. Built on set-asides. In the 1700s, they gave Caucasian men tools to farm land, to go out west, to be agricultural, to continue to build the nation. Back then, it was just good macroeconomics. Now they call it welfare, and you're eating up the system. We change the words when we want to demonize a group. And we're willing to take the hits socioeconomically. Because we talk about this nation being a great nation, and it has great potential. But we're in debt. We're in debt. And we gloss over that for the uh, trappings of commercialism. And the free market philosophy that's only free for a select few. Yes. And so every seven years, what, 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 what was told for them to happen? And then every 49 years, what was it told to happen? You reset. Reset. Yes. One, because the earth needs it. You can't pillage it even with good intentions without giving it a period of rest. To replenish itself. So that seventh year, that 49th year, the 50th year, you give it rest. And you give back to those who may have found themselves upon hard times that were circumstantial. Not always a neglect of a personal decision. So that they can get back to being self-sufficient again. Because ultimately, that's what everybody desires. And when we are proactive in this posture, all of society benefits. 
Well, then mm-hmm. I guess that takes has to take into effect that everybody wants everybody to succeed. And that's just not the culture we live in. No, it's not. But God always used the remnant to create change. Mm. So it is doable. Yes. If there's a select. We, we have enough money going into banks on Sundays in this country to change welfare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to use the government to do it. Mm-hmm. But we're too divided. Even Christians, wasn't there? Isn't there a stat that if if the people who claim to be Christians alone just tithe their ten percent, you would feed the world? Mm. So why does it? And maybe this is just how it feels to me so often. Is and and I've talked in Sherman. I've talked in in previous podcasts of um, you know being like raised Republican, being um, the president of college Republicans, right and. And, and seeing one perspective uh, my entire life. Um, and the closer that I've got to God, the closer that my um, political allegiances have kind of eroded into nothing. But when I think of politics, and that is something that is obviously very present in our country, and I think of you know, the two specific sides, left and right, you know, the majority of, our, of Christians seem to align right if we're talking of a political party why does it seem as though many who uh, would not consider themselves Christian not just liberal but who would not consider themselves Christian are more concerned with the well-being of others it seems as though those who might not consider themselves Christian Christians are more likely to be vocal for the well-being of those who are put down by the system. A lot of what we've talked about, like if we're looking at it as straight politics, wouldn't we be more likely to say the left is more likely to take an interest of the poor than we would the right? And if that is the case, why does it feel like the church is so quiet on those issues? Or am I wrong? Well, first let me say... um, For my Caucasian brothers and sisters that are listening, I am not angry. I am passionate. <laughs> Please don't misrepresent my tone. I, I, that's just who I am. I, I've had to learn this even inside of my marriage yes. with my wife. I'm demonstrative. Uh, matter of fact, I was in. <laughs> I don't like that I was word. In, I was in premarital <laughs> counseling, and the counselor told me I am a histrionic narcissist. Uh, and even it as a compliment. I said, you, you just slapped me without moving your hands, mm. and you want me to take it as a compliment. But what I've learned over time is that I've been in settings where I've been passionate about perspectives and what I ultimately believe to be biblical truth. And not just when I'm arguing an opinion. I mean, when I'm talking about biblical truth, and I get folks saying, well, why are you so angry? And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I have been, and at times I have been, and I'll let you know if I am. But... I'm generally passionate about this subject matter. So I want to get that out there for my friends. So now, to your question. The challenge with being indoctrinated into a political perspective is that it does not allow you to live a kingdom mindset. Mm-hmm. And we haven't, I believe, I know at least from my experience growing up, there was not a lot of discussion about kingdom. There was a lot of discussion about the Gospels and Jesus Christ and him being the end all be all in such a way that we glamorized the man who said, I'm just the door. I'm trying to get you into my father. Matter of fact, everything he talked about that he did, he always gave honor and talked about it's only being done because of the father. And we have unfortunately allowed for nationalism and political vantage points or viewpoints to be how we see how we get to continue in what we deem to be our view or our collective view of right Mm -hmm. for whatever it is that we are wanting to maintain because we think that the others are coming up against what we believe to be right and necessary for us to maintain whatever it is we're trying to hold on, which is always a social context. Mm -hmm. 
Although many of that same demographic will cry, we don't want socialism. But I have not met one wealthy person that did not move to the community for which they moved and lived in without taking a look at all of the social amenities that they get to live out on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. But if I want to decree that same context for folk in generational poverty, oh no, that's socialism. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. We wow. change the ghettos now so that they are socially viable for some folk to move back down and live in in their condos and lofts and townhomes. Oh my gosh. But, you know, so we, we've got these terms and it's all about taking a vantage point that's going to offer me the greatest system of comfort and convenience. And then we'll call it Christianity. Hmm. I heard this quote um, instead of Christians. Now they said it about the Republican Party, but I think it can go to either party or whatever party. Uh, Christians are being pimped out by the by the Republican Party. But I think that can be a generalized statement. Yeah, I've heard that. That uh, uh, I've heard African Americans say that about Demo African American Democrats that mm -hmm. they're being pimped out by the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you're on one side or the other, thinking the other side is pimped out, then you've missed the entire gospel because it is about the kingdom, and the kingdom principles are not lined up with the donkey or the elephant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's not, we it's, and it's not meant to be. <laughs> It ain't, it, ain't, it, ain't a, it ain't an elephant, it ain't a donkey. We got a lamb. We got a it, lamb. And, and, and I think that if we're willing to come together, and even as the body, if we started with this city, United Way has come up with three bold goals of how they want to approach this issue of poverty. The mayor and the Child Poverty Collaborative says in five years we want to decrease poverty by 10,000 families. And what they've done is they put uh, a friend of mine in a position who, where she has looked at the entire landscape of poverty in the city and how the players who are at play have engaged their, their spending and programmatic processes and then reevaluated it and said, these are some things that need to be done so that we're more collaborative, there's less waste, there's less overlap, and we can, be, we can approach this in a more, uh, in, in a wiser position. And she's got nothing but pushback. Mm. Because that's gonna require something different mm -hmm. than the comfort and convenience that comes with the, the system being the way that it has always been. And all you have to do is go to the 2015 Urban League report where they took from 1995 to 2015 and looked at the socioeconomics and even with the tremendous debacle of 2008 and what it meant to us socioeconomically as a nation and as a city, this city weathered that, quite frankly, some would say masterfully, but the African American community dipped socioeconomically in that 20 year time frame while the rest of the majority have not. And the socioeconomic gap has widened in that time frame. And it is said, it's believed that that 2008 for African Americans and Latinos have set them back generations. Mm. Because it took generations for some to even just get there. And when I think about my family dynamics, oh, I, I know that's the case for us. Um, my f grandmother worked for, a, for two doctors as a maid. My great-grandparents were sharecroppers. My great-great-grandparents were slaves. So there is no generational wealth passed down. There was no generational knowledge about wealth mm. passed down. Mm -hmm. I had to learn as an adult what a 401k and a 403b was because I got employed by an entity that taught me. Mm -hmm. And then I reached out, realizing how little I know, mm -hmm. to others who could teach me about the stock market and what does that mean and how to think about investing versus just surviving on paycheck to paycheck, which mm -hmm. is all my family generationally has known. So there's been nobody to tell me anything else. Mm -hmm. It wasn't being taught in school. Mm -hmm. And those challenges play itself out and have to have the context associated with them if we're really going to empathize with the circumstances. And then furthermore, quite frankly, be wiser about how to approach solutions. Mm. I want to pause it right there. Because um, I could go on for days. Well, I want you to, but I'm going <laughs> to stop so this. Nice.
um, at part one so that we can, um, instead of people asking them to sit down and listen for two hours, we're yeah, going to yeah. split it over and, yeah, and good not everybody has a crazy drive to work. So we'll, let's pause it right there um, with episode 10 and we'll come back with part two um, and episode 11 next week. Thank you.